Well, so as the Dalai Lama was saying to me, <laughs> I want to begin my lecture today by my experience with the Dalai Lama and uh, move into a resurrectional theme, uh, working somehow those uh, two experiences of an Easter Day resurrectional ritual here at the cathedral and then being with the Dalai Lama on uh, Sunday evening, um, the committee at the Rothko Chapel who planned the ecumenical prayer service asked me uh, to be one of the ones who prayed with the Dalai Lama and so I did have some uh, opportunity to be personally present with him and visit for just a moment before the service. Let me make a couple of responses to the experience. Uh, the first one is that, as most of you know from the press and your own experience, that uh, in Tibetan Buddhism they believe that the Dalai Lama is a reincarnation of one of the many Buddha, and that the Buddha spirit is present most particularly in the Dalai Lama, and that uh, he uh, was self-selected at age three by that. The tradition is that the holy men uh, of the monastery that is the central monastery of uh, Tibetan Buddhism go out and search through Tibet for the heir of the incarnation. And they had objects of the previous Dalai Lama, and at age three, this current Dalai Lama chose from among objects the very objects that belonged to the Dalai Lama. So at age three, he was called out to begin his preparation to be the new Dalai Lama. Now, both in spiritual formation and in psychological development, if you take a child at age three and begin telling him that he is holy and begin treating him as if he were holy, you will develop one or two things, either a holy man or a sociopath. Now, in order to protect... Uh, this human being from the sociopathology that would develop if he thought he was God. They put him in a container and discipline called the monastic life in which he, among perhaps all human beings, has been submitted to a most rigorous discipline of spiritual formation and development. So that rather than becoming a sociopath, um, he has become a holy man. And by that I mean in terms of his own humanity that he has developed through spiritual formation, through the discipline of the monastic life, living into a symbol, and further, since uh, the time that he can remember, he has been treated in holy ways. There are lots of implications about that for our own development and for our own parenting. Uh, that is that we must give and approximate as much as we can on the human level a sense of treating our children as sacred gifts and 
as having a dimension of the holiness about them, while at the same time we are caught in this art of raising children where we have to set limits and set boundaries and make a discipline of their own development. So we sort of see this in macro terms with somebody like the Dalai Lama. The second thing I would say about him is that, that because then of his own spiritual development uh, through the calling out of him from uh, his community to be the representation of the incarnation for his religion, in addition to his own training and development, that in addition to that, if you tell the collective that this is holiness. In symbolic formulation, that holiness becomes a magnet for the projection of the holiness of the collective. So that if we teach and if we have a collective consensus agreement that this is a symbol of holiness, then when he is present, the holiness that dwells in each of us is elicited, so we project it onto him. Uh, that's not unlike what we do with the Bishop of Rome, uh, the Pope, the Holy Father, or that we uh, do with any other living sort of symbol. Uh, being with him uh, in the gathering place, uh, the office to the Rothko Chapel, and experiencing him as he came into the room, we had a sense that even though each of us from our various traditions uh, have lived with the symbolic life, I felt a sort of new presence came in the room, and I think some of the psychic energy uh, just of the ten of us who were to be the prayers got projected onto this figure as he came into the room. Um, he quickly... Um, seized upon that, had a great ability to sort of neutralize it by his own humanity, not in any inappropriate way, but just uh, by receiving that as if this is an expectation and a, a part of his own being and nature to receive such projections. It takes, and it would take, it seems to me, a highly developed consciousness or spirituality to be able to receive such projection constantly. And he has a great way of receiving that. And I think, of course, the error would be to not receive it. And we would have uh, some sort of uh, crisis created by the inability for him to receive it. So much of his training, obviously, and experience is to receive the projection. And one of the things that he did when he came into the room, of course, was to make contact with the projection. Um, and so that he uh, creates a posture of receptivity, even his own body posture, his own sense of humility. He becomes a, a sort of a sponge for the projection. He just receives it. He just takes it into himself in a, in a wonderful kind of way. In addition to that, he acted like a Tibetan monk. Um, he giggled and um, uh, responded uh, to uh, humor um, he even um, expressed some humor. He uh, seemed impish, had a wonderful sort of giggle about him. I'm told that that is sort of characteristic of the Tibetan people, to be impish and, and playful. Uh, that was a nice experience with him. Um, 
when he came around the circle of the men and women who were there to pray with him, as he came to each of us, he had a, a wonderful ability to be present with us for that moment. Each person, in the, uh, sort of his own impish, humble way, reaches out and takes your hands between his and holds them and then looks at you. And there is a connection there, a, a real sense of authentic connection. Um, as long as I'm name dropping, um, <laughs> I was praying at another uh, event one time uh, with Prince Philip. And as a matter of fact, we were invited to a small gathering with Prince Philip and... Uh, and I sat by him on the dais, and, and this whole sense, too, of the projection of the kingliness of each person or the princedom of each person onto the, that archetype or that mythological um, characterization. And so I asked him, I said, I asked Prince Philip, I said, with all the sort of energy that gets constellated around you in your presence and all the people who want to be with you or touch you or be present, how do you stand all that extroverted demand on you? And he said, well, they train us rather well, you know. <laughs> and so the Dalai Lama has been trained rather well, you know. Um, and he has a great sense of, of uh, the appropriateness of the projection that he receives from you and what he projects himself and has that nice way of being authentically present with you as he uh, speaks with you. I think the most dramatic experience, though, was not just that, though that had a lot of drama to it. I sort of said to myself as I was driving over to the chapel that this would be a good test of the projection of psychic energy because I had very little left having been in my own resurrectional experience and my own ritualizing on Easter morning with three services, three sermons, and all that that implies following a holy week and a, and a long Lent, uh, I was rent and spent. Uh, so uh, Easter afternoon, I usually um, go back into my own tomb, uh, but uh, was by my own desire, uh, pleased and, and wanting to be present at this um, unique opportunity. So I thought it would take a lot of uh, phenomenology for me to be able to muster a lot of psychic energy to project onto the Dalai Lama. Well, the phenomenology was there. I felt my own sense of being pulled and, and my own projection of my own holiness onto him and the receptivity of his holiness. But the biggest experience for me was not the personal, but as we walked from the office over to the chapel, there were hundreds of people lined up. And the sort of hush that goes over the crowd as he walks by, and being in that field force to feel the projections of the people, it's palpable. It is literal energy. You know, the psyche of each human being uh, is a relatively closed system. That is to say that uh, the system is a quantum of energy that is available within one system. 
but relative in the sense that there is energy displaced between and among people. And we've all had the experience of being moved or somebody casting a spell or being spellbound, and that's the sense of energy that can capture you, and it particularly captures us in mass experiences where there is a mass cytology and the energy comes out of each person and we have almost a new body created. Well, there's a sense of that when he walks by and you're in his presence of this kind of energy being constellated. It is almost, well, I think it is palpable. You can feel it uh, with your sensorium rather than, uh, than uh, just the tactility of feeling. It's a nice experience, um, an interesting experience of what I will put under the category of religious phenomenology. This is a phenomenon. And it needs to be treated uh, with with um, that kind of respect and that kind of seriousness. It is, I think, a good case study of the religious nature of the human being. And that is to say that we are spiritual beings and that we do have holiness within us and that it is part of the deep, um, unconscious need of the human being at some deep substrata for us to have symbols and incarnations of the holiness that we each hold. And here it was being just experienced or acted out in our presence and by this small in stature, impish, very human Tibetan monk called the Dalai Lama. It's a nice experience. And I think at that level I got in touch once again with the universality of the religious nature and religious function and the inclusiveness in spite of some of my Christian brothers and sisters who say that there is no God other than our God and no way to be in touch with that God except through Jesus Christ. As you know by now, I don't agree with that. Um, I would take a stand, I have taken stands publicly on that. Um, I am not an exclusivist. Uh, I am an inclusiveness. I'm not a universalist. This is a different thing and I'm not here to lecture about that today. But I do believe that if one wants a relationship with God, God will find a way for that person to have a relationship. And who in the world am I to say there's only one way to have a relationship with God, in spite of Jesus' words, um, because those words have been greatly misused and are tattered and torn by a literal interpretation. He's talking about his Christhood, which gets constellated anywhere God wants it. And so we come to God through Christ. Uh, and that Christhood is available to people incarnated uh, and dwelling in many places. And so I am not an exclusivist. I'm not a universalist in the sense that anybody, everybody goes, uh, regardless of what. Um, I think one has to want to go uh, to have a relationship with God and want an eternal relationship, which is leading me now into my lecture. <laughs> And generally, my introductions are longer than my lectures. <laughs> I want to talk about this whole sense of reincarnation that we had present in the Dalai Lama tradition uh, as compared to our own resurrectional theology, which is what this season's about. We're now in the Easter season. Uh, let me kind of check off some confusing... Uh, yet related understandings of this phenomenon of new life. And see if we can make some distinctions and connections between and among these understandings 
in order to know what we talk about when we talk about resurrection. It is a term, I think, that is, is by usage broadened out and in some ways, therefore, become too thin. And so let's think about the substance of what we mean by resurrection and then some of the implications of that. There is a, a sort of, it is a theology, I suspect, called a transmigration of soul. That is where the life sequence is interrupted by these incarnations. That there is not a continuation of personality or ego structure, but there is a continuation of the soul. Uh, the soul is one of those sort of soft understandings that's almost cloud-like, and that is you can get an image of it, but once you try to grasp it, it disappears. The soul is something we all know, and yet none of us can quite articulate. And I was lecturing several weeks ago, and I was off and running um, in that dangerous realm that I live in most of the time without notes. And as I was going, and I was about two paragraphs ahead of myself, I started uh, having a parapraxis, which is where consciousness breaks open and the unconscious rushes up. It's called Freudian slip. Um, and I said something not inappropriate in terms of the collective response, but inappropriate to where I was going, and suddenly realized that my intuition had outrun my articulation. That happens um, to most of us. But this sense of the inability to articulate what it is we know by intuition, the soul. And that the soul, this, this transmigration of souls is fairly close to what the Tibetan tradition would be about the Dalai Lama. And that is that there is some essence of a soul that gets sort of transmigrated through generations and rests itself uh, within an individual, but it's not uh, part of personality or ego structure. It's more a sense of the image or pattern of a personality that gets invested or held uh, with personalities through uh, history. And this is much more of what this reincarnation in the Tibetan understanding is that there's something about the soul that gets passed on. It's not uh, too far from what Jung would call the collective unconscious with the archetypes, and that is to say that at some level there is the disposition of everybody who has ever lived and each person who lives. And that there seem to be people whose egos get connected to that level for reasons that are, once again, unknown. And those people are what uh, mystery is called old souls. People who seem to have a sense of continuity of things and a sense of appreciation of, of the depth of tradition and, and seem to have a knowing about things. Now, the second of understanding of a new life is reincarnation. Reincarnation is the a reappearance of ego structure and personality at another time. 
And that is this whole sense of, yes, I have lived before. I was uh, first aware of being alive in, in the Renaissance, and I came back uh, shortly after World War One or something, that sense of uh, people struggling to know themselves in this time and know that they, as themselves, lived at another time. That's different than this transmigration of souls that we pick up in the tradition of Buddhism. This is reincarnation, that is, I live as uh, Maria Antoinette, for instance. I, I, not I. <laughs> I don't really like cake, but... Um, <laughs> But the sense of I, this ego structure and personality that identifies myself was present in another time, in another um, set of circumstances, another body. That's reincarnation. Uh, among all the carnations, um, I respect this the least. <laughs> Rebirth has to do of uh, being conscious of a new phylum of personality that is born within a span of life. That's a rebirth. It's the change of the essential nature of the personality within a span of life. That's a rebirth. That is to say that this single human being at one time saw the world this way and his and herself in this way and Though it is the same personality, there's a new phylum of awareness or consciousness that breaks out, and that's a new birth. It is like being born again, not to be confused with resurrection, which it often is. That is a sense that we, in this span of life, um, in this time and place, will have new addition to the personality that is of essence and substantially different than the former personality. A new birth. I see the world in a new way. I feel uh, about myself in a different way. That is that rebirth phenomenon. Another is what we would call a transformation, which is natural. A natural movement of an individual in one sort of transcending or growing or becoming something more. That's a transforming. The form seems to change. That is a natural process. Nature, whoever she is and wherever she is, dwells within the psyche as well as the soil. And that the psyche has a natural need to transform itself, to go through change, to change form, to form a new personality. And there is a changing going on, and that's how we become individuals. It is what's known as individuation. It is the natural transformation, not to be confused with rebirth, not to be confused with reincarnation, not to be confused with resurrection. A whole other term is that term known as resuscitation. And resuscitation is reviving the body. Um, one is presumed to be near or, or within the definition of death and is brought back to life, and that's resuscitation. Uh, I think all of these get really confused. A lot of what I hear people talking about using the term resurrection are really talking about resuscitation or rebirth. 
coming back to life presumes that you've been somewhere else. Um, so this being brought back to life, I think, is really uh, under the category of resuscitation. Resurrection means the reestablishment of human personality in existence after biological death. The resurrection that is talked about in the New Testament and the precise definition is the reappearance or reemergence or reestablishment of the essential personality after biological death. That's what we mean by that. Um, in the Christian understanding of resurrection, I don't know what your view of it is, and you can be a Christian and have another view, but the Christian view is that you, as Mary or Jane or John or Pittman, die, your body dies, you're dead, um, just as dead as Jesus was, but whatever was embodied in Pittman is reestablished outside time and space is known as Pittman, recognizable as Pittman. Now, our model for that, of course, is Jesus. And that is that he died dead, attributed by the collective uh, consciousness or the consensus reality. This man's dead. And yet he reappeared to the community of faith, and they recognized him as Jesus. Now, it took a bit, because you remember on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him, and they recognized him finally in the breaking of the bread, which is a wonderful story and carries the resurrection theme about Jesus, realizing that the presence of Jesus is still within time and space in our own anamnesis, in our own remembering, in our own knowing of that. But the resurrection then, for us, when we talk about resurrectional theology, we're talking about dying dead and then being reestablished in personality outside time and space. That's what resurrection is about. And we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Um, so that at the heavenly banquet metaphor, uh, as we sit about the table, uh, we'll recognize one another. Now, whether you believe that or not is of little relevance to me, um, but it is important for me to me that you know what the church believes about that. And this is what the church believes about resurrection. Now, I have made the distinctions, but you probably are way ahead of me. Your intuition has outrun my articulation. They're all connected. See, this is the glory of... Uh, human mind is ability to differentiate and connect. I think it's amazing, undervalued, substantial, essential phenomenon of a human mind. It's our, our ability to differentiate and connect. It is, by the way, uh, the earliest symptom of ego formation, the ability to differentiate and connect. And the more that we are able to do that, the greater our consciousness becomes. By the way, I think the gift of the human being to nature is consciousness. 
what we have been called upon in our creation to add to the cosmos is consciousness. And my radical responsibility as a creature is to increase my consciousness because in some kind of relative uh, evaluation and quantity that every time my consciousness is reborn, I have added to the cosmic consciousness. And that's my responsibility. And I think that's what God gave to creation when he created the creature, consciousness. And differentiation and connection is a very important part of consciousness. You've already made the connections among these. And that is that there's something about each of these that is saying something uh, essential about us that we just know. Now, in our tradition, resurrection, therefore, in its precision of term, meaning the reestablishment of the essential personality after death outside time and space, that the implications of that then are for rebirth, which is the phenomenon of coming into a new understanding of the world or oneself in this life. In other words, if the resurrection was just about life after death, then it would be something we would uh, leave over there until we needed it. But the connection back in terms of its own power is that that resurrectional experience gives us energy for rebirth. So that we are given energy through the resurrection for rebirth in this life. So that there is both a resurrection in life after death, and at the same time, a resurrectional energy that gives us new birth in this life, so that we can be born again in this life. Now, if we take the model that we are of nature and spirit for a moment, two wonderful opposites that are loose in creation, nature, of course, has to do with that primordial wholeness that exists in creation. Spirit has to do with creating uh, a troubling of that elementary consciousness through differentiation. The spirit troubles the water, creates a chaos out of which comes differentiation. The land is separated uh, from the water and the sky is separated from the land so that we have the spirit moving to divide and differentiate things. And we have the nature that is seeking to get everything back together. And so one is present in the other. And we have this interesting, wonderful kind of rhythm uh, and rhyme of creation going on. Now, what resurrection then is, is a sense that whatever uh, was brought into being in this individual consciousness that is named at baptism in Christian tradition, that that is a continuing uh, death and rebirth experience. And what the Creator brought us in the creature Jesus of Nazareth was a dramatic revelation that this goes on even after death. So that we don't have to wait till we die to have the resurrectional experience, which is called new birth. 
Now, the implications about uh, this whole idea of the transmigration of souls, I think there is some connection in, within that for us. It's called the commun- communion of saints. And that is that we exist in the communion of saints, and that is every Christian or every member of our family that's ever lived before, we are related to at some mysterious level. And all those that are to come, we are in some ways in a communion with them. That is that community, so that in the transmigration of souls, we have even within Christianity a sense of that. Now, the reincarnation uh, is really not a part of Christian doctrine and not something that I put a lot of weight on because it is the presumption of uh, the simple reestablishment of personality in another time and another place, um, which doesn't carry for me a high degree of relevance about my responsibility in this time and this place. Be that as it may, there's got to be some sense, though, even within the Christian dogma, uh, that we carry within us some knowing of previous times. And uh, I think that probably that is uh, true, that there is something in us that uh, we are not born uh, t- uh, tabla rosa, that is to say, white sheets of paper. We're born with a disposition, and we're born with a, a sense of inherited things within our genetic structure as well as our psychogenetic structure. And so I think there is a sense of reincarnation being sort of the elementary or literalist view of what we experience uh, unconsciously. Now, what I want to posit for us today is that two or three things. The first one is, I have never been more convinced of the phenomenology of the religious nature of the human being. Having once again a wonderful experience of my own Easter tradition, my own sacred story, uh, my own experience of uh, the resurrection ritual of hope and promise, and then to have an experience with a holy man and an experience of the holiness of a group as it's constellated around a particular figure, um, that's a nice was a nice experience for me, and I think most of our learning, knowledge, and uh, values are based empirically, not inherited. And so, when one has an experience, one begins to say, "That's what I know," rather than reading about it or being told about it. When one experiences that, seems to be the purest form of learning. And so, I have a sense of the religious nature of the human being, the fundamental holiness of each of us. Uh, that we carry in our own, and if we had the rigorous discipline or had the calling to establish our own rule and discipline, that we too might project holiness that would be uh, infectious for others. That is a potentiality. Not everybody's called to it, obviously. Uh, If they bring you the Dalai Lama's objects, um, be careful whether you choose them or not. Uh, the last thing I would say is that there is a fundamental part of the human spirit and psyche that is in transition, transformation, renewal, uh, transcendence. And that all of these different precise sort of understandings of that share in common uh, the knowing that we are in dynamic movement. And this, it seems to me, is the ecstatic and exciting gift of being human. And that is, uh, we 
except in the limited ego understanding of a consensus reality called the world, which is bound in these fetters of time and space, we get stuck there. But in terms of our real soul, our real psychodynamic, the sense of our own spirit, we are continually knowing new things and experiencing new things, unimaginable things, unexpected surprises that are all possible for us and centered in our own story, in our own sacredness, in our own holiness, in this wonderful resurrection story. It is a story of the absolute, wide-open, unimaginable possibility of the human soul and that we experience it in these several kinds of ways and that uh, for our own precision of our own faith that we believe in rebirth in this existence, time and time and time again. And we believe in resurrection, which is a timeless cutting loose of the soul into an unimaginable, only intuitive uh, area uh, of uh, existence that runs far beyond my articulation. Thank you.